Hello. Yeah, everyone hear me? Good. Good. Good morning, everybody. It is great to be here this morning, continuing our journey through Ephesians. Um, oh, this? Oh, you noticed? Um, yeah, this is a delightful little number that my wife got me. Um, delightful little number. My wife got me it just to, she sort of wanted to say it sums up kind of what she thinks about me, what light I bring to her life, how valuable I am to her. And if you could see her face now, you'll know that's so not true. <laughs> um, no, in fact, this is actually Stan's jacket. Um, I borrowed it from him uh, from something he calls Thursday Night Glamour Boys with Niall. I have no idea what that is, but, uh, but, but he's let me use it tonight. But this morning, the reason I'm wearing this jacket, the reason that I've got this on, is because we're looking at a passage this morning from Paul that tells us to put on the new in place of the old to live in a way that reflects our calling to life rather than wallow in the death and futility of our old ways. And, and this morning, I hope that, that we can see that there is a difference um, between cold, uh, authoritarian, rule-based religion and living a life of obedience and servitude that reflects a gratitude and an overwhelming joy received through our calling in Christ. Um, I hope this morning we'll see, I'm going to take this jacket off now to spare the blushes of Rebecca any longer, um, but I hope this morning we'll see that Paul is definitely calling us to one of these, and he's definitely call, not calling us to the other. To start though, on the screen is the PowerPoint up, Warren, have you got it? Oh, good, good job, yes, walking in the new life. To start though, I want to take us on um, a bit of a whistle-stop tour of where we've been so far. Um, Ephesians is, next slide there, Warren. Um, Ephesians is a, is a letter that was written to people, so it would have been read by the people receiving and written by Paul all at once. And so throughout the letter, he builds on things that he's previously mentioned. And in this chapter, he's going to build on a lot of stuff that we should be remembering from previous, um, previous chapters that we've read. And through our first week, uh, for the first few weeks, Ali really helpfully sort of summed this up for us a couple of weeks ago in saying that the first couple of weeks, the first three chapters are all about where we sit, reinforcing and revealing where we, children of God, now sit before our heavenly Father because of Christ. Paul took us then to the deepest, darkest parts of his movie tastes in looking at I Am Legend, and he drew out this idea that because of Christ alone, his death, his resurrection, we have been, uh, we have been given a new life. We've been brought from death to life before God, and that we are actually now the legacy of Christ living here on earth until he returns and I love how chapter two puts that. Chapter two says that we are no longer alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of God's promise, but instead are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. And to quote our Canadian pastor, I think that already is worth a boom. <laughs> Paul is adamant for his church, for this church in Ephesus, and I believe for us today that we would see that it is only because of Christ and only because of the gracious gift of, his, of God's only son that we can sit here and claim these incredible things about ourselves. And to emphasize this, um, this will show you how fun my life is. I actually went through uh, chapters one to three and counted all the times that Paul uses a phrase like in him, in Christ, through Christ, in the beloved, in the knowledge of him, with Christ, because that's what I do in my spare time. Um, and and, and all these different ways that Paul pretty much says in Christ or through Christ in the first three chapters, Paul says this over 30 times. Over 30 times. See, Paul is in no doubt 
and wants us to be in no doubt that we are no longer enemies of God, we are no longer outcasts, we are no longer outside looking in because of one thing, Jesus. And then from there, we've had a couple of weeks, on to the next slide there, Warren, and where we've moved from a focus of where we sit now to how we walk. And Ali shared a bit of a really helpful image of the spirit being like this electric bike that pushes us on. And, and then Alan came and unpacked for us a little bit of the realization Paul was having as he watched the, I love this phrase, the, the unfolding manifold wisdom of God coming to reality in the conception and the releasing of Christ's church to go and do the mission of God in the world. And Al took us through some of the tools that, that God gave and Christ gave the church to do that, that he gave his bride to complete this mission. And there was this idea coming out that now that we know where we sit, now that we have our doctrine, now that we understand God, now that we understand us and we understand the relationship between, that our focus now moves to how do we respond? How is God's glory going to be spread throughout the world? How are we to walk in a direction that corresponds to the calling of where I sit? And I love how I'll sum this up for us, and I'll probably get a tattooed on me someday, this idea that the only thing better than Christ in the flesh was Christ in all flesh. And so in all of that, right at the very center and the very core of this calling is the unshakable truth that we sit in this calling because of God's grace as children because of the unrelenting love of the Savior, Jesus Christ. And this morning, we're going to look then into a little bit of what that calling means for us. But if we don't start from that place, if we don't start from the place where this is a gift of grace, this is a gift of love, this is purely because of what Jesus has done for us, then this morning's passage could sit on us like a ton of bricks. It could be like a stick or a chain to whip ourselves with as we compare ourselves to a standard that we just cannot reach. But in reality, I believe this morning's passage is a passage that, that is meant to get us excited. It's meant to show us what life with Christ is like. It's meant to show us because of your calling, when you walk in that calling, this is what life becomes. Now, it's not to say it doesn't have challenge and it doesn't have cost and it doesn't have a response, but the outcome of that response is life and life to the full. And so this morning we find ourselves, thanks Warren, in at chapter 4, verses 17 to 32. And I want to tackle this portion of Paul's letter in two parts. Oh, go back one. Um, yeah. Uh, firstly, I want to really, really briefly look at the call of Paul to be renewed and then in verses 17 to 24. And then after that, I want to look into his instructions for us as the church in 25 to 32. But first, 17 to 24, Paul writes, and Marlene, thank you so much for reading that earlier. Paul writes, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Notice the wording that Paul uses at the start of verse 17. This I say and testify in the Lord. For Paul, this isn't just an idea that's crept into his head. It's not something he's kind of just sort of thought about and kind of likes. No, it's, it's as if he's like testifying in court on behalf of Jesus towards us and proclaiming and shouting to us, don't walk as the Gentiles do anymore. A couple of weeks ago, while he preached from chapter four, uh, verse one, and we saw that there was a challenge and a call for Christians to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. And again, Paul here is reminding us that we have been saved, that we have been called, that it's not because of what we've done, but there is a calling and there is a response on our part now in how we walk out that calling. 
Paul goes on to say about the Gentiles or those who are saved in verse 18, he goes on to say, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Paul is writing to a church that is surrounded by a society and a people that are living in the darkness of lives without God. People who neither know or acknowledge the existence or the presence of Yahweh in the universe. People who because of their lack of knowledge or maybe even more accurately, their rejection of God are striving after whatever the world can give them, whatever life can give them. And ultimately, Paul says they're striving after emptiness. They're longing to fill their lives with every pleasure or desire that they can imagine. Power, money, fame, comfort, sex, laziness, whatever we want, we take. Whatever looks good, have that because, sure, it'd be good, won't it? That'll make me happy. And what does Paul say that's done for them? Has it made them happy? Has it made them full? Has it given them meaning in life and a reason to rejoice because I'm rich? That is going crazy there. I'm rich. I'm powerful, I'm famous, I don't have a mortgage, yes. Or whatever you could fill in that gap, no. The reality that Paul lays out is that the pursuit of all of these earthly things, the pursuit of stuff, the pursuit of pleasure, the pursuit of power, all of it has only left them hardened, numbed out to anything deeper or bigger than themselves or their little trinkets or toys or their house or whatever comfort they can find in the world. Paul actually describes it, and there's a, there's a photo here, that they have become callous. Any, any guitar players, golfers, tradesmen, Ethan, Ethan's bound to have hands that look like this after a hard day's work. Um, but even, or, or golfers, you'll know, like I've played golf a few times this week, and already my hands are feeling quite hard from it um, in, in here. And, and, and Paul is saying that for those who don't know God, for those who, this is it, this is the stuff that we have, and as a result have no relationship with him, their lives have become like this, hardened by an understanding that nothing goes deeper than me, nothing goes higher than me, nothing means anything really, because it's all just stuff in it, and so I best make the best life that I can for myself, I don't care what it happens to others, don't care what I do to others, don't care what it does to me, so long as I'm happy, I'll fill my life with whatever I want, and sure that'll do. John D. Barry puts it like this on the, on the next slide, everyone. He says, in losing the living conception of a living God, society lost also the conception of the true object and perfection of human life. They lost the whole point of life and so wandered on aimless, hopeless, and reckless. Life without God, ultimately, Paul is saying here, is meaningless. That is the sad reality that faced the outside of the church in Ephesus. And if we look around our world today, 2,000 years later, can we say it's actually that different now either? But then Paul changes gear again in verse 20, and he goes on to say, but that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. See, where the world was living in darkness and numbness to God, Paul is trying to scream and toy out of the church that that's no longer you. 
Yes, you were once walking in darkness. Yes, you were once lost. Yes, you were once dead. You were once blind to the reality of God and his grace and something bigger than you and something better than you and something more than you. But that was your old life. When you chose to follow Jesus, when you, when you gave your life to him, when you were baptized, the old you died, and now you have a new life. And because you have a new life, and because the old you is dead, it's time to be renewed in that life. It's time to be renewed in your mind in that life. It's time to put on, not the jacket, but the new self. By putting on this renewed likeness and righteousness of God, not won or deserved, but given to me because of what Jesus has done for me on the cross. And the, the Greek uh, scholars, or even just English teachers, will love what's about to happen here. Um, if you want the screen, yep. Um, the, the word renewed comes from this Greek word, ananeu, apologies for my pronunciation. Um, and, it's a, and, and, and the English teachers are gonna love this because this word, to be renewed, is a passive verb. Okay, everyone's like, what the heck's passive verb? I didn't really know before today, so, or before, before I started this, but it's a passive verb, which means that the subject of the sentence that it's in, the thing that it's talking about, isn't actually doing it. This being renewed, if we are the subject of Paul's sentence, be renewed, you are to be renewed, this word is saying that actually, that renewal isn't, isn't you. That renewal is not do better, try harder, work more be a better person. Oh, don't be so rubbish. Oh, come on, be better, be better. No, no, no. This renewal happens, Paul says, whenever we begin to just step obediently after God, when we continue to turn back to him, when we continue to make those times where we re remember we've messed up, we've, we, we see we've gone wrong, and we turn back to God. And when we do that, the Spirit comes in, and it begins to work out our renewal more and more into the likeness that God has called us to. Paul is adamant here to put on the new clothes. Don't run back to your grave to try and put on the dead rags that you died in. No, don't run back to that. You've been given new clothes. You've been given new life. You've been given a new calling. So don't run back to death. Run towards life. The church in Ephesus needed to be taught. They needed to be reminded of where they sat. And that because of where they sat, they had been given new clothes of life to wear, and these clothes were no comparison to the old rags they used to wear. These were beautiful robes, beautiful calling, salvation, freedom, grace, kindness, gentleness, self-control, all these things. And so there's this call from Paul. Next slide, Warren, thanks. But then in verses 25 to 32, he goes into some practical ways in which this is to be lived out amongst the people of God in their day-to-day -day lives. And I just want to look at a couple of these in a bit of detail. Then I want to say, but first I want to tell you a couple of stories that have happened to me recently that have really hit this home for me in my life. But first, if we read through verses 25 to 32, yep, they're up on the screen there, we'll see the following list of quote-unquote commands that Paul has for the church. And we have one, don't lie, tell the truth, be angry and don't sin, uh, don't hold a grudge, don't give the devil a foothold, don't steal, work honestly for your living, share with those in need, watch your mouth, speak well of each other, don't grieve the spirit, don't be bitter, don't let anger consume you, don't be slagging, don't be mean, spiteful, evil-intentioned or malicious, be kind and forgive each other. And we're going to come back to a couple of these, but my first question... For everyone sitting out there, and if you're really brave, you can put your hand up, but I, I wouldn't put my hand up. My, my question for you guys, is anybody out there looking at that list and saying, yeah, 17 for 17, baby. <laughs> Let's do this. Anybody, 
Anybody looking at that? And if you are, if in your head right now you're saying yes, can I first of all say congratulations, get a weekly one-to-one organized with you, get a spiritual workout, an autobiography, and definitely an autograph because I need what you've got. Because when I look at this list, there's some areas, there's some areas I'm like, eh, not bad, not bad, you know. Uh, don't steal. I can't really remember the last time I stole something, so it's pretty good, doing all right. Work honestly for a living. I have to say at the front of the people who employ me, yes, I definitely work honestly for a living. But if I look throughout this list, it's really not hard for me to think back to the last time, probably in all of those categories, where I didn't meet this mark. And see, if you're like me and you think that and you read this list, you can start to feel unworthy, deflated, not good enough, or a failure. But I don't think Paul was writing this list to do that to the Ephesian church. Paul is just off the back of laying out so clearly in the previous chapter, and in this one too, that where we sit before God now is purely because of the finished work of Christ's death and resurrection. We're not saved because we were good enough or because we caught God's eye or because God said, oh, there's a good person, I could maybe make them a bit better or for any reason other than the mercy and the grace that God has given to us as a gift of love. And yet, this list is here. And so it must be important and beneficial and useful for correction teaching and living out this calling that we are called to. So, how do we read this list? My suggestion is that we need to be able to differentiate between what it is to be no protocol and what it is to the overflow. I'll, I'll start, a, I'll, I'll tell you a quick story. I came in to St. Coleman's last year at some point to grab some cameras or stuff behind the, behind the stage. It was a school day and it was during school time. So I went into the office and said, look, can I go grab this stuff? And they were like, yeah, no problem. And so I went in, up behind the stage, grabbing the stuff, realized I needed the loo. So then decided, right, need to go to the loo. And, but trained in child protection, you see. So it was like, don't go to the student bathroom, big red flag. What I'll do is I'll go to the staff toilets. Went to the staff toilets, came back, and on my way back, there was a woman, I shouldn't have said woman, I should have just said staff member, but anyway, there was a staff member uh, in the hall with a relatively stern look on her face <laughs> towards me. She was like really sussing me out. And I was walking back and she kind of stopped me and long story short, she wasn't overly happy I was in the building <laughs> because I didn't really have a name badge or any of that stuff. So I, uh, I, I, she thankfully let me come grab the stuff and then you know, escorted me off premises. <laughs> But you see, I had missed out on protocol there. So by letter of the law, I shouldn't have been in the building. I had failed to do certain things like sign the visitor's book or get the badge, etc. And because of that, I, I shouldn't have been there. Letter of the law, she was right. But the message of the good news, the message of Jesus, the message of Ephesians is that we don't sit where we deserve to sit right now. Not one of us can sit here and say, I deserve to sit in the throne room of God. I deserve to sit in, the, in God's grace and God's mercy. No, not a single one of us. If this list is protocol to gain entry, then Ephesians or any of Paul's writings are some of the saddest things you can read. They're a billboard that says you're not good enough and you never will be. I'll tell you another story that hit this home for me. Um, recently had some car trouble. Um, my uh, car's timing chain, you'll have a timing belt, 
but on the outside, timing chains on the inside of a car, for the mechanics out there will know. Um, my timing chain uh, needed changed, and I went to a mechanic, and they said, yep, your timing chain needs changed, um, but we can't do it. It needs to be a specialist, and you need to go to the specialist. So I found a specialist in Castle Welland, because that's where all specialists live, apparently. Um, so I, I needed to get to Castle Welland, but the, I phoned the guy up, and he said, yeah, no problem, I could fix that for you. But um, if, if you try to drive that here, I, I wouldn't recommend that, because if that snaps, your car is scrap. Like your car, your engine will rip itself apart, and I won't be able to do anything for you. That's why I had to make a decision in my head, and, and tight Josh decided, had to make a decision between paying the money for a breakdown recovery vehicle to pick me up, or running the risk of driving up to Castle Wellen, and my car just explodes in the road at some point. And I was thinking and humming and hawing and humming and hawing, and I really didn't want to pay the money to get picked up, but I also didn't want my car to blow up, and eventually I decided I'll, I'll just pay someone to come pick me up. And so I, I look on Google, I find a guy who's pretty local, um, and I phone him up, and as I'm on the phone to him, I tell him what's, what's the case and what's happening, and he says, right, no problem, uh, you need to go to Castlewell, and that's fine, where do you need picked up from? And I say, Nineteen Ashburn. That's my address on the internet now. You're welcome. Um, Nineteen... <laughs> Good one. Sorry, Rebecca. <laughs> but uh, 19 Ashburn. Um, and I gotta repeat it. Why not? And he says, and he says, uh, he goes, 19 Ashburn, Ball and Hinch. And I go, yeah, yeah. And he goes, I used to live in that house. And I was like, what? Are you kidding me? Like, I said, like, are you serious? Like, I wasn't gonna get this guy to come. I then had to go on Google. I then had to decide that I actually would pay him. I then had to phone him. And it turns out the guy who I phoned literally stood in the room, lived in the room that I was making the phone call from. First thing that told me, probably something in this. So, we then, he comes, picks me up, and we're traveling to Castlewell. And as we're traveling, he's, he's telling me, like, just, I don't know where, it's like 50-something old guy, really nice guy, but he's telling me all about his life. He's telling me all about like, what he's done all his life and all this stuff, and he's really opening up. At one point, he actually turns to me and says, Flip, I'm telling you my life story here. And I go, oh, I love it, no worries. Um, so he's telling me all this, and he's, he's dropping a few F-bombs. He's, 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 a, he's a working fella, you know, that's fine, whatever. And as he's doing talking to me, I'm loving it that he's talking to me. I love talking to people. But I'm praying in my head, please don't ask what I do. Please don't ask what I do. Please don't ask what I do. Because if you ask what I do, I'm going to have to say I work for a church. And if I work for a church, you're going to be like, oh, what a weirdo. This guy's a total religious freak. Oh, my goodness. What's he doing? And then he'll shut off. So great prayer to pray, by the way. That's not a recommendation from me. Um, but eventually, obviously, he asked me about what I do. So I tell him I... Uh, work at the edge. No, I don't. I tell him I work for a church, um, and, and I'm a youth pastor or whatever. Um, and, and at first, he's like, oh, right, okay. Oh, I'm so sorry. Sorry, I was swearing. I was like, no, don't worry about it. But then he opens up to me, and the whole conversation takes a, a turn to this journey of faith he'd been on. This journey where a few, maybe four or five years ago, he'd, he'd gone to Whitewell Chapel in Belfast, and he really enjoyed it, and, and he'd, he'd got involved with loads of stuff. He kept going to the church. He really enjoyed the speaker. He, he got even involved with like, some of the mission stuff and everything. And, and he was opening up all about this to me. And then he goes, but then one day, I just woke up, and I just thought, I can't do it. I can't do this. I can't do it. And me being nosy, I said, why'd you say you can't do it? What do you, what do you mean you can't do it? And he thought about it for a minute, and I apologize for being so nosy, and, and, and he and thought about it, and then he said, you know, I just can't be good enough. I just can't be good enough. You know, the pastor will say something to the church, and I'll go out, and I'll look at someone and think that, or I'll say this, or I'll think this, or I'll do this, or I'll swear, or whatever it is, and and he just, the conclusion he came to was, I just can't be good enough for Jesus. I just can't be good enough for God. 
So I chatted them a bit about my faith and about it being a relationship and about forgiveness versus repentance and, and, and all this stuff and probably the most evangelizing I've done in recent memory. Um, but he dropped me off, we had a really good chat, I paid him and that was that. But see, after thinking back to the conversation, my heart was breaking for the guy. I was thinking, this guy was so close. In one way, he was so close. He was literally in a church, enjoying community with believers, enjoying potential mission that he probably didn't even understand, but he just loved it. And he was really close, but he was so far from seeing the grace and the love and the mercy that God had towards him. And that broke my heart as I thought about it. And here, Paul is not advocating for, and I believe Christianity cannot be moralistic deism or be good enough and God will love you. Be good enough and God will keep you in the family. Be good enough and God's God's not going to be angry at you. If he is, then that is soul crushing. Because if my salvation and my right standing before God, a holy God, relies on my strength and righteousness or my holiness, then I have no shot But if this reflects, if this list, if this lifestyle reflects an overflow of the outworkings of a soul that relies and realizes that the gift of life and son or daughtership of God is only a gift given by grace, then it becomes a beautiful description of what life with Christ is all about. Hold a grudge against someone after all that Christ has done to forgive me? How on earth can I do that? steal from someone? How on earth, what do I need in my life that God hasn't already promised to give me? Share my possessions with those in need? How could I not after the goodness of God in my life? Live with bitterness in my heart? How could I harbor a bitter thought or hatred when I think of the love that God has lavished upon me through my Savior? where we get bogged down and tired and worn out on faith is whenever we mix those two things up. When faith becomes being good enough or having to match up to Jesus, that that is a mountain we cannot climb. But when faith in Christ means realizing and relying on Jesus, on the unshakable truth that it's only because of faith and because of his life, death, and resurrection, and because of the grace of God towards me, then this stuff just pours out of us. The depth of gratitude over a price paid that we could never pay begins to bubble up from our souls because the Spirit of God begins to move and transform and renew us and spur us on like that electric bike that Ali talked about. So how do you see the walk of of your faith at the minute? Is it protocol? Is it be good enough? Or is it overflow from the grace and the love and the mercy that you have received? And and before we finish, before we wrap up, I I really want to look at just a couple of things Paul specifically points up. Verse 26 of our passage says, be angry and do not sin. And I find this one a bit confusing upon first reading. Be angry and do not sin. Surely sin equals anger or anger equals sin. Um, well, Paul's quoting from, from Psalm 4.4 here, um, and, and Paul has a lot more scriptural knowledge than me, so I'm not going to question him. But for Paul and for the church, there has to be a kind of anger that doesn't lead to sin. And we see it demonstrated in Jesus whenever he's at the temple and he gets so cross and flips the tables and chases the people out. But in Jesus, there was no sin. So what does it mean to carry anger well? Well, in the case of Jesus, he never let his anger consume him. 
He never he kept his emotions in check. His anger, and this is the bit for me that like hits me like a ton of bricks, his anger was never personal, never egotistical, and never prideful. I think of all the times I've been angry recently, and if I, I don't think I could put them in any other category than my ego, than my pride, or than it being personal for me. And this is the way of Jesus that it should be with Christians. We should be outraged when we see miscarriages of justice, when, when, when we see sin, when we see poverty, when we see broken things happening in the world, and it should move us to action. But if Rebecca takes the last fanta lemon out of the fridge, or if Ethan reverses into my car after a night of youth, or I hit my tee shot on the 18th tee box on a Saturday and it swings right out of bounds, are those places that I need to be angry? Are those places where I'm, I have this good, righteous indignation? Are there places of pride, of grudges, or of anger in our lives today that we need to give over to God? We need to repent of and we need to act upon to resolve so as to not let the sun go down on our anger. And there's also another way that I think we can carry sin well in our walk with Christ, and it's, it's carrying it well in relation to our sin. I've recently been journeying uh, with a few guys through Goliath Must Fall, shout out to Ruben at the back over there, um, with, with some of the guys at the edge, um, and uh, he mentions this idea of having pet giants, and these, these, things, these are things that you have in your life when you're young, or maybe start off small, maybe a wee sin, or maybe a wee anxiety, or whatever, and they start small, they're not really harmful, but they grow as you get older, and they grow as you don't deal with them to overwhelm you, whether that's anxiety, depression, sin, whatever, lust, whatever it is, and he talks about these pet sins we keep, and and. I, and as I read through this book with those guys, I realized that in my life, I have been guilty of having pet sins. A little sin that no one sees, no one really gets hurt. It's a good pacifier for me when life's tough. Something that I know I should have turned away from or dealt with, but it just seems so hard to do, so I let it stay, and I let it grow, and I let it grow. And scripture's clear stance on these kind of sins. Hebrews 10, 24 to 26 says, and let us consider how to stir one, one, up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And this is the important part for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there is no, or there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. That is heavy. And in verse 27 of our passage today, it says, and give no opportunity to the devil. Paul watching from wherever land he is right now um, has me on a bit of a Matt Chandler mention count. Um, so I'm cashing one in now, but his motto for this kind of, for this kind of thing is, is to be 99% known is to be unknown. That 1% in your life that you or that I may hold back from everyone else even from God, that thing that makes your neck sweat at the thought of people finding out that you do that or that you've thought that or that you've done that or, or no, you would never tell anyone that, that little pet sin that you like to feed under the table because it acts like a kind of life pacifier that it takes the edge off and it's kind of, that's all the enemy needs to have a foothold in your life to rob you of this calling and this inheritance won for you by Jesus to grab you just as you're about to step into whatever God might be calling you to, step out in mission, step out in faith, step out in whatever, and he just grabs you and says, ah, you've got this. You couldn't, you couldn't do that. You've got this. No way. The call placed upon those of us who would follow Christ is a total hatred and a total destruction of sin in our lives. 
is to destroy any foothold that the enemy would want to create and use to derail us from the promises and the purposes of God. Malcolm was talking about our vision. This is the kind of stuff that this stops us from doing. So hate your sin and kill your sin. And then finally, how do we do that? By remembering the last instruction that Paul gave us in verse 32. Ali highlighted it for us earlier. It says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Off the back of all of these instructions, every example of a life that's pulling in this direction of where we sit, this is Paul's final instruction to the church in Ephesians. This is the linchpin that summarizes the character and walk of those who are in Christ. And if this list was entry protocol, then there's some questions we could ask about this one. Why would I forgive someone and let them into my family who's gonna hurt me? Why would I forgive someone and let them into our family, our gang, our group, if they're gonna wreck it, if they're gonna mess up? Because we want our group to be perfect. This is protocol, people. We need to follow the protocol. But if this list of instructions reflects the overflow of a heart that has received forgiveness, that has received reconciliation with a loving heavenly father and a creator God, then what else can we actually do but just forgive each other? Like the two servants in the parable of Jesus, how could we in our forgiven state not pass on that forgiveness to others, not overflow with forgiveness towards others. I love how the Tyndale Ephesians commentary sums this up. It's on the next slide. It says, the Christian's forgiving of others is to be as free and complete as that of God who puts away a person's sins as far as east is from the west and holds them against him him or her no more. This could be so easy for a 24-year-old guy to just stand up at the front of church and say, forgive each other, because Jesus forgave you. I don't know what stuff is harbored in your hearts. I know stuff that's harbored in my hearts that I need to forgive people for. This is the challenge and the call of forgiveness that we are called to have for each other and for everyone. And then secondly, in in these final words of the chapter, It's this reminder that just as been throughout all of Ephesians has been the whole point pretty much of Paul's whole letter is that it is through Christ alone that we are welcomed into the family of God. It's through his sacrifice alone that we were, that we are, and that we will be forgiven. When we turn back to him and we humble ourselves in confession and repentance and we create rhythms in our lives of confession and repentance so that the spirit may renew us, so the Spirit may sanctify us. And repentance just being the simple yet deeply profound re-altering of our life back into the direction of our calling, back towards Jesus, accepting Christ's invitation back into life and into the fullness of God. See, right here at the end of this depiction of the new walk in the new life, won for us by Christ, Paul reminds us that we don't graduate beyond Jesus. Rather, we gain entry into the, Father th- and, and, and into the family of God through Jesus, and then through him, we remain in right standing. We remain in relationship with the Father. There's always more Jesus to discover. There's always more God to press into. There's always more of the Holy Spirit to immerse ourselves in. And Rick Hill sums it up in the last chapter of his book here on the last slide. It says, discipleship continues in the same way that it started, by dependence on Jesus. 
rooted and resilient disciples will, never, will continue to be aware of their needs, never graduating from this. To grow as a disciple does not mean we need more than Jesus. It means we simply need more of Jesus. Ephesians 4 is a call to walk in a direction that corresponds to our calling, that follows the reality of knowing that because of Christ, we sit here this morning as children of God, no longer on the outside looking in. It's a call to be renewed, to throw off the old that was nothing but emptiness, nothing but death, and nothing but lies, and to put on the new calling of fullness, of life, and of truth. And how do we do that? Through knowing the truth of Christ and his finished work on the cross, through allowing the reality of that to penetrate deep into our very souls so as to unearth an overflow that springs up of gratitude and spirit-provoked goodness, be that in our personal lives or our fellowship together. And finally, through never graduating beyond Jesus, through living out those rhythms of confession and repentance and pressing deeper and deeper and deeper into the love of a heavenly father who sent his only son that we talked about last week to die on a cross to make you right with God. That's what this chapter, that's what this passage of Ephesians, that's this life that we are called into, this life of pursuing God, proclaiming Jesus, transforming lives. That's what Paul's trying to unearth in us. And not out of a place of be good enough and then you'll be able to be effective. No, overflow from your acceptance and grace and forgiveness and mercy of God. Just let that pour out of you. When you forget about it, when you mess up, turn back to him and let it fill you again. And just continue to let that fill you and pour out and pour out out of overflow rather than protocol.